at the turn of each year, God in his providence offers the opportunity to reflect upon the year that has passed in anticipation of the year that is ahead. It is a time to reassess the past so that we may reassess, plan, and strategize for the realignment of our world and the advancement of the kingdom of Christ. Our old covenant reading coming from Proverbs, the Proverbs of King Solomon, chapter 4, chapter 4, Proverbs chapter 4, beginning in verse 14 through verse 19. Chapter 4, beginning in verse 14 through verse 19. Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning. By inspiration, the King of Israel says this, Enter not into the path of the wicked, and go not in the way of evil men. Avoid it, pass not by it, turn from it, and pass away. For they sleep not, except they have done mischief, and their sleep is taken away, unless they cause some to fall. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. But the path of the just is as the shining light that shineth more and more unto the perfect day. The way of the wicked is his darkness. They know not at what they stumble. Matthew chapter 5, Christ speaking, beginning in verse 14 through verse 18. The same spirit that moved Solomon, Christ being God himself, which moved Solomon in the past, speaks to us in Matthew chapter 5. Ye are the light of the world, A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Think not that I am come to destroy the law, the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, One jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever, and by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. Now the question that we must consider, especially now in the new year, is not do we want truth? Of course, that's a given. We want truth to prevail. So the question is not do we want truth, integrity, and liberty to prevail in both the civil realm and the church realm and and the realm of the nation and the world, but the question isn't do we want it or don't we want it, but how do we achieve it? Secondly, perhaps more importantly, the question is once we achieve it, let's say, for instance, we do achieve these things, how do we maintain it? In the realm of the church, The only way to maintain biblical integrity and the truth of God's word is to only allow redeemed born-again men in the pulpits. A regenerate man will consistently admonish his congregation toward a love and passion for the things of God. And that's what we need. We need men who are sold out, who are intoxicated for the word of God, sold out for the service of God, which means that they will have to be men of self-sacrificial passion. In other words... For those men, there is a steep price to pay when entering into the pulpit ministry. Of course, it is not without its blessings. 
But make no mistake about it. It is a commission riddled with many sorrows, many challenges. Therefore, only men of the regeneration, because they are empowered by the regeneration of God, can succeed in that calling. And that is what it is. It's a calling. It's a vocation. The problem is that not many men are willing to ask the hard questions concerning the regeneration, concerning regeneration and God's call and the price one has to pay. And as a result, we let anyone into our pulpits. But as the Lord Jesus Christ says, not many in that day will truly be Christians. Because not many that say, Lord, Lord, are actually redeemed souls. The pulpit ministry is not a business endeavor. It's not something that someone says, gee, I think I'll choose that as my business. No, it's not that at all. It's a life's calling. It's it's, it's a vocation. Therefore, if unregenerate men are allowed into the pulpits of Christ's church, they will, and I do not say that they might, but rather they will definitely, absolutely, without doubt, destroy the witness of the gospel and the people under their pastorate. In the civil realm, the only way to achieve national fidelity, no matter who is in political power, is to be sure the law of the land is the law of God the Creator. Otherwise, you will have unjust laws. You will have laws of men and not the laws of God. And in the months before Lee's surrender at Appomattox in 1863, the Reverend Joseph Stye, a Georgia soldier of the 53rd Regiment of the Confederate Army, in an appeal to the Confederate States, wrote a treatise called National Rectitude, the Only True Basis of National Prosperity. He said this, In arranging the evidence of our grand national duty, it becomes us to remember that God is the one great witness of earth. On this subject, he testifies in two ways, by his word and by his work. National rectitude therefore demands national consecration to the which is his kingdom, which is established by the word of God. Man has but two possible objects of supreme pursuit. God or the world. The very first work of life is to choose between them, end quote. So the question is, God or the world? Styles understood that ideas have consequences. Your decision has consequences. Godly ideas have righteous consequences, whereas worldly ideas, especially in the realm of the social construct, law, politics, and governance, have consequences which always result in chaos, confusion, tyranny, and oppression. And once chaos and confusion results, great sorrow is one of the consequences. So every thought, every idea... And ultimately, every action is based upon an individual's belief system. These ideas are all part of our our worldview. All part of a worldview based upon a particular set of beliefs. And this is why when we vet a churchman, whether it's an elder or a deacon or a minister or a civil leader, in fact, whenever we vet any of these men in, in office, we should ask the question, And these are the questions which we don't usually ask. When when vetting anyone, we ask the question, how will you use your office to advance the kingdom of God on earth? Could you imagine asking a senator, a congressman, 
Usually what we say, well, what are your policies? What will you support? Do you support this? Do you support that? No. How will you advance the kingdom of God on earth? And what you're actually asking is what is their world and life view? If they have a compartmentalized view of the world, they will ultimately negate the word of God in its application to government, law, politics, economics, and every other aspect of God's world. And this truncated view of the world will destroy the world, as we have witnessed throughout the history of the American church and the American nation, especially in our modern day. Now, by definition, once again, worldviews are made up of a network of basic assumptions and presuppositions and perceptions by which man consciously or subconsciously interprets reality and by which all men judge reality. And this means that a man's particular worldview provides the necessary framework by which he determines right and wrong, good and evil, what is good, what is right, what is permissible, what is not. So it's a framework by which he determines what is just or unjust, what is moral, what is immoral, what leads to freedom, or what leads to tyranny. It is also the framework which provides his sense of what type of government, law, and public policy is best for man and society. Now these ideas, or these worldviews, will either be theocentric, or Christocentric, or humanistic, either God-centered, Christ-centered, centered upon the Bible, the law of God, or it will be man-centered. Either God will be God, or the men of the state will seek to be God. The world that God originally created. When we think back about God creating the world, he said it is good. The world that God originally created was made good. Everything was good. The culture was good. Adam was good. Eve was good. The animals were good. The land was good. It was fertile. And when God said it was good... He was saying, this is pleasing to me. The world was pleasing to God because it reflected the mind of God. It reflected the person of God, the image of God. Adam did not have to remake the world into which he was born. The world was already made good. The culture was was good. There was no need for its repair, no need for the remaking of the world. It did need maintenance, absolutely, but it was good. It did not need to be changed, but it did need to be maintained, cultivated, and protected from evil. And that is what Adam failed to accomplish. What Adam did accomplish, however, by his rebellion, was the destruction of the world. And consequently, by his rebellion, he was unable to remake it into what it was originally purposed for. God had originally crafted the world to conform to his divine perception of what was good and right, just and equitable. God had introduced the world to Adam and Eve and with that introduction, that good world that he gave to Adam and Eve, he gave them a certain perception of culture. He gave them a certain world and life view, a perfect blueprint of how things should run. So he creates the world. He says, this is how it should be. This is what I want you to maintain. This is what I made and this is what you are to maintain. I created it good. You need to keep it good. No change is needed. But all that ended when Adam adopted another perception, another worldview, another blueprint of what the world should be. And as soon as he adopted another idea, because as a man thinketh, so is he, 
As soon as Adam adopted another perception, another worldview, another blueprint, which was distinct from the Creator's, he acted upon it. Adam's wrong perception of the world caused him to recreate a world which was anti-God. And since Adam wanted to be as God, he decided to create a world in his own fallen image. So when Adam violated the clear commandment of God, the age of Eden died. The world which God had created was then transformed into something ugly and unsustainable. When Edom's culture ended, a new culture appeared, which was very much unlike the original design that God created, which was good. A new culture appeared, which was ugly. And this new culture was one of trauma and chaos. It was a culture of confusion and darkness because it was polluted with sin and the evil of man's depravity who sought for himself to be his own deification. He wanted to be God. And so human history has always lived within that fallen culture. We live within that fallen culture today. We live amidst a culture where those in power want to be as God. And just think about it. What we are living in because of that fallen Adam. Man, as God seeks to change the parameters of law and justice, he seeks to redefine biology, transforming men and women into women and men, and they seek to change the laws of marriage and the laws of gender by destroying the laws of logic. They seek to control the lives of their subjects by controlling their income, their travel, their health care, their businesses, their energy, their food, their means of self-defense, their language, what they can say and what they can't say, what's forbidden, what's not forbidden their education, their media, their churches, and and even the weather. All because they seek to be God. They seek to transform the culture into something unrecognizable through their coercion. And when men in power lose themselves to the notion that they can be as God, we are on the precipice of revolution. There is, however, a marked difference between the world into which Adam and Eve were thrust into after the fall and the world and culture that we now experience. There's a difference between what Adam and Eve had to deal with after the fall and what we deal with today. And the difference is Christ has come. Whereas Adam and Eve only had the hope of the cultural restoration, we have the actual manifestation along with the power of that cultural restoration through the resurrected Lord and the sending forth of His Spirit which came to the world at Pentecost. So we have been made into an exceeding great and strong army with exceeding great and precious promises of victory and dominion as a result of the conquest of the Messiah. And while we are sheep before the great shepherd, and that's what people love to say, but we're just sheep. Well, it's true. The Bible does say that we're sheep. But we're the sheep of the great shepherd. And before the great shepherd, we are sheep. But before the men of the world, we are lions. When Adam and Eve sinned, it was the end of their world. But it was not the end of the world. It was the end of Eden, but it was not the end of the world. It was the end of their world. It was the end of Eden. They would still be responsible to fix it. They still had to be responsible to fix what they destroyed. But now they would have to fulfill that mandate in a fallen world by the sweat of their brow. My dear friend, Dr. Thomas Smedley observes, he says, and I just, I just love these quotes and I would use them 
everywhere that I am allowed to use them because they're so potent. He says this, Ages end. The end of a culture appears to those in the midst of the trauma to be the end of the world. Most people go inert, hunker down, and wait to see what happens next. Many panic and embrace bizarre extremes of thought and behavior. From time to time, however, a remarkable leader emerges to lead the way to a more sustainable social reality. There's always hope. Adam and Eve had to lead the way for a more sustainable social reality. And the only way they could do that was to reject their fallible reason and look to God's revelation. What Adam and Eve had to do was leave off their worldview and adopt the worldview that God had originally given them. What America and the world faces today is what Dr. Smedley calls the world that John warned us about. A world where the systematic structure of thought and action asserts that God can be safely ignored. Beloved of the Lord, God cannot be safely ignored. But the world believes that God can be ignored. And this active ignoring of God is anti-religion. But it is a religion nevertheless. It is a religion which has a professed deity, but it is a deity which can be ignored or in some cases redefined according to the ideas of the individual or the state. And that religion is called atheism, which by definition is the religion of unbelief. The logical consequence of atheism, the logical consequence, now notice, we are in the midst of atheistic and atheistic culture. And the logical consequence of atheism, where God can be safely ignored, is revolution. Make no mistake about it. A revolution militantly against the revelation of God's truth and anyone that holds to that truth. We are living in an age of revolution characterized by confusion, chaos, and darkness, morally, legally, economically, medically, militarily, and socially. Historically, the church has always led the way for the direction of the nation. We always were leaders in the culture. And the world knew it. The Frenchman, Alex de Tocqueville, identified the strength of the American nation and the liberty that they enjoyed stemming from the foundation of Christianity, which came as a result of the fidelity of the church, an active church, a passionate church, a church which would not compromise within that nation. Notice what he says. The Americans combined the notions of Christianity and of liberty so intimately in their minds that it is impossible to make them conceive the one without the other. You cannot have liberty without Christianity. Make no mistake about that. He said this, I saw it for the greatness and genius of America in her in her harbors, in her ample rivers, and it was not there. I saw it for I saw for it the greatness in in the genius of America and her fertile fields in boundless forests. I saw it for it there, but it was not there. I saw for the greatness and genius of America in her public school system and her institutions of learning, and it was not there. I saw for the greatness and genius of America in her democratic congress and matchless constitution. And it was not there. You think about people today. Got to go back to the constitution. But the total said, 
It was not fair. That wasn't the way the genius of America was. And then he says this. It was not until I went into the churches of America and I heard her pulpits aflame with righteousness did I understand the secret genius and power of America. America is great because America is good. And if America ever ceases to be good, she will cease to be great. Now once the church fell from the truth of God's word, they adopted another truth by adopting another Jesus, which was not a Jesus of the Bible, and nor was it the truth of Scripture. And by adopting a false Jesus and a false truth, they adopted a lie. They embraced the lie. And it is that lie that has caused America to be no longer great because she is no longer good. Writing to the church at Corinth, Paul pleads with them. He says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 3 and following. He says, But I fear, I am terrified, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve to his subtlety, that day when Eden died, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that cometh preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if ye receive another spirit which ye have not received, or another gospel which ye have not accepted, ye might well bear with him. Paul is stating that those who are persuaded by another Jesus actually enjoy this pseudo-Christ because they can possess him and control him as their own. And once this pseudo-Christ becomes the possession of man, man believes then he can control God. He can be God. Man becomes the master. God becomes the servant. Lord, give me this, give me that. I want this, I want the other thing. And this is what we are facing today. Another Jesus has been erected in the place of the real Jesus And this pseudo-Christ does not command obedience to God's law, nor does he obligate his followers to advance the cultural mandate of Genesis 1, even though it has been reiterated in Matthew 28. So, in a word, no longer are Christians called to disciple nations. They just want to get people into heaven before the world goes to hell in a handcart. So no longer are Christians taught to disciple nations. They are taught only to live morally. And when it's convenient... Maybe they'll make a few individuals the disciples of Christ. But only when convenient. What they fail to realize is that the end goal of the conversion of individuals is so that nations would be converted. Speaking of the Christ and writing to his son Solomon, David declares this in Psalm 72, 7 and following. He says, speaking of the Lord Christ, In his days shall the righteous flourish and abundance of peace so long as the moon endureth. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river unto the ends of the earth. They that dwell in the wilderness shall bow before him and his enemies shall lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of the isles shall bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba shall offer gifts. Yea, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. In Psalm 89, the psalmist concurs. He says, All nations whom thou hast made 
shall come and worship before thee, O Lord, and shall glorify thy name. Isaiah too understood this cultural commission, speaking of the day of his kingdom after the resurrection, and as a result of Pentecost, he says this in Isaiah 2, 2, he says, And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains, and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow unto it. Notice, not all people, nations. But before we get too depressed over the situation, the darkness of our time, let me quote from R.J. Rushdoony as he contemplates some of the positive possibilities whenever an era collapses. He says this, The end of an age is always a time of turmoil, war, economic catastrophe, cynicism, lawlessness, and distress. But it is also an era of heightened challenge and creativity and of intense vitality. And because of the intensification of issues and their worldwide scope, never has an era faced a more demanding and exciting crisis. You think about the way he's thinking. Think about what he's saying. A more demanding and exciting crisis. We, we look at a crisis as a horrible thing. This is a, an exciting time. A time of great change. Dr. Smedley has the same view when he says anxious times, troublesome times, sometimes call forth greatness and inspire extraordinary gifted thinkers. At rare moments in history, an exceptional public figure gathers material from the wreckage swirling in the maelstorm around him and crafts from the debris a new ark, a new vessel for the identity and aspirations of the people. And then millions of lives are then changed. It's all about perception. It's all about how you perceive the world around you. Since all judgment and justice is based upon a particular set of presuppositions whereby judgment and justice is weighed, if those presuppositions are not based on an epistemological system of perfect righteousness, equity and truth, which is the law of God, the justice system unravels, liberty is lost, and a culture is then plunged into chaos. And once that happens, the enslavement of an entire civilization results. Any decision, law, or public policy which uses another standard other than the standard of God's truth cannot bring about liberty, safety, or prosperity. And since all law and public policy is actually the legislation of morality, the question is never morality or no morality, but whose morality? The question is whose law? Whose idea of judgment? Whose idea of justice? Whose the idea of equity? Upon whose religious assumptions would law or public policy be based upon? Those are the questions... Throughout the history of the world, and especially in the development of Western civilization, the Bible, both Old and New Testament scriptures, have been the textbook for liberty and the formation of a righteous civil government. If a nation desires liberty, it must be based upon the unchangeable absolute truth of God's revelation, because where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Joseph Stiles was begging the Confederacy, he was begging the Confederacy, to adopt the revelation of God's word, including its laws of justice and public policy as their only source of truth, judgment, and justice. He believed that by rejecting God's revelation as the only epistemological foundation for a coherent philosophy of government that does not devolve into tyranny, despotism, totalitarianism, socialism, communism, or chaos, justice had to be based upon the word of God. He understood that if the Confederate states 
He understood that if the Confederate States were to be set at liberty, they had to be set at liberty under God. Note both his accusation and his solution. Quote, But mark, sir, if you please, you object to my proposal that our country should seize this favorable juncture and struggle up to a higher standard of Christian virtue. I put it to the history of man, the constitution of things, the word of God, and your own intelligence and candor. Do you not shelter all the causes of your national calamities? Do you not keep at work in full force all the powers that afflict the country? Do you not curse your native land by dooming her to the eternal endurance of the degradations and distresses which she feels she has already borne too long? But I have a more serious accusation to table against you. I charge you with placing your country's neck upon the executioner's block. God rules this world and rules it by one thought. Reconstruction after God. Think about these men. Who were these people? Where are these people? Where are these people today? Where's the conviction today? We're asleep. And the churches are asleep along with us. So he, along with Henry Thornwell, believed that whenever a governing political economic system is based on man's finite, fallible, and fallen nature, government, law, and public policy becomes unpredictable. They were headed in a situation which they could not predict. They didn't know what was going to happen if not based upon God's word. And whenever there is unrestrained unpredictability in law and government, it easily devolves into oppression because man by nature without restraint is tyrannical. And this is where we are today. Now just before the surrender of Lee's Northern Army and the subsequent defeat of the Confederacy, James Thornwell, Henry James Thornwell, petitioned the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church. Just think about it. He went to the church. He knew with the power of God or where it should have been. So he goes and he petitions the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church to consider pressuring the Confederate States of America to adopt the law of God as the only standard of justice. You see, in those days, the church meant something. The ministers had a word to say about where the country was headed. He said this, Nevertheless, we the people of the Confederate States directly acknowledge our responsibility to God and the supremacy of His Son, Jesus Christ, as King of kings and Lord of lords, and hereby ordain that no law should be passed by the Congress of these Confederate States inconsistent with the will of God as revealed in the Holy Scriptures. I mean, you've got to love it. His proposal by the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church, was rejected. It was rejected. Outright rejected. And on the afternoon of April 9th, 1865, the hope of the Confederacy was dashed to pieces. And so to adopt another law construct is to adopt statist law, which is revolutionary, atheistic, and which always devolves into total despotism. Once another standard of law is adopted, a legal revolution begins. Its goal is tyranny and oppression. Now, the 18th century scholar, Groen van Prinsterer, observed this. Secular liberalism is but an ideological way station on the road toward an atheistic society 
ruled by a totalitarian state. Let me read that again. Secular liberalism is but an ideological way station on the road toward an atheistic society ruled by a totalitarian state. Once the ideologues of atheism take control, the entire culture erodes. Once God's truth is replaced by human reason, the end is not very far off. Unlike the pagan nations of the world, Puritan and colonial America and all of Western civilization originally had a societal baseline structured by the law of God. However, with the influence of the Enlightenment, the revolutionary thrust of deism and atheism, and with the return of Aristotelian ideas and worldviews adopted by Newton, Locke, and Hobbes, the original system of God's law word was hijacked. Truth became what man decided it was. Groen says this, Where all questions are decided by man's opinion, by man's intellectual comprehension, all opinions then are equal. And whoever can complement the corruption of the human heart with cogent reasoning and strict logic will therefore carry the day. How then can any truth remain unassailed? Does not the highest truth, which is from God, remain fixed forever as the foundation of all truths, religious and moral? Deny the foundation and the series of errors flowing from that one error will assume the appearance of truth while every truth will seem falsehood, misunderstanding, prejudice and superstition. The Puritans, the American forefathers and some of the men of the Confederacy believed that liberty flowed from a moral observance of God's law, biblical law, because only God's revelation could show man what is good and righteous altogether. What we need is societal transformation. Not a band-aid from Congress. Not a new executive order from the pagans. But a societal transformation based upon the Word of God. But that can only begin when people are transformed. And that's the mission of the church. Transform people so they can transform the culture. The one saving grace that the world has in its favor is that Jesus has come. The exceptional figure, that exceptional leadership figure that Dr. Smedley refers to is the incarnate victorious Christ. The problem, however, is that many of his people have forgotten his message and his method for reinvigorating the culture. And so the question remains, what can be done at the end of an age? What is to be done at the end of our age so as to inaugurate the start of a new age where Christ and his word actually structures and drives the culture? So let's begin by assessing where we are first. Author Kenneth Myers challenges the reader in his book to take a serious look at just how pop culture has influenced their lives. And that would include Facebook, Twitter, video games, and all of those other things. Notice what he says. Popular culture, like the meat offered to idols in 1 Corinthians 10, is a part of the created order, part of the earth that is the Lord's, and thus something capable of bringing innocent pleasure to believers. But not everything that is permissible is constructive. Popular culture specializes in instant gratification. And you think about that. You have a video game, you want to get to the next level. Oh, I got to get to the next level. The next level, the next level, and then the next level, and the hours just get eaten up. 
But not everything he says that is permissible is constructive. Popular culture specializes in instant gratification. But like most instant things, it spoils your taste for something better. And what Myers is trying to point out is that we are not only inundated with humanistic pop culture by our many connections to it, we are also affected by it in a big way. I marvel, I marvel at the work of the reformers and the men of the Puritan era writing so many treatises and books. I think about John Owen with his volumes and volumes of theological dissertations and yet he went on the campaign trail with Cromwell and was the professor at at the university rubbing shoulders with the king and then, of course, Cromwell first. And yet, writing. Calvin with his writing and his, his correspondence. What have we done? So instead of searching for alternatives to pop culture and the wasting of time, we become desensitized to the carnal affections of worldliness by embracing the culture and becoming more like the world than like the Word made flesh. He continues, he says this, I believe that the challenge of living with popular culture may well be as serious for modern Christians as persecutions and plagues were for the saints of earlier centuries. Christians concerned about popular culture should be as much about the sensibilities it encourages as about its content. Enemies that come loudly and visibly are usually much easier to fight than those that are undetectable. Physical affliction, even to the point of death, for the sake of Christ, is a heavy cross, but at least it can be readily recognized at the time as a trial of faith. But the erosion of character, the spoiling of innocent pleasures, and the cheapening of life itself that often accompanies many of popular modern culture can occur so subtly that we believe nothing happened. Notice his solution. Make the church a living example of alternatives to the methods and message of popular culture. The church could be a community displaying in its corporate life and in the lives of its members a culture of transcendence. This would not mean escaping from the world. It would require refusing to conform to its ways not only when they are evil, but when they are not beneficial or constructive. What have you been doing the past year? And will you continue in the year that you have before you? When it comes to culture, mankind must find its meaning in either man or God. Okay, so what steps should be taken? Well, firstly, you have to ask yourself a very serious question. A very hard question. And here it is. Pull back the veil and ask yourself this. Are you a serious child of God or are you just playing church? You know, we like to, we like to condemn the almost conservative. We call them rhinos. Let's come up with an acronym for almost Christians. Are you serious about God and the transcendence of the culture? Ask this question. What is your life's purpose? Is it Godward or selfward? Are you content with religiosity and moralism? Or do you want to change the world for Christ? 
Because if your mission is not change the world for Christ, then, then your mission is too small. Your, your vision is too small. What is your view of the corporate assembly? Because that's where the message is given. That's where the challenge is given. You cannot, you cannot police your own self. You've got to be challenged from somewhere outside. That's where the Bible comes in. That's where the minister comes in. So what is your view of the corporate assembly? How important is it to be in the Lord's house on the Lord's day? The attendance upon the word of God declared. How important is that? Or is church just another ritual that you believe you should keep just to not incur God's displeasure or to get uh, dirty looks from your congregate members? Well, Dr. Smedley gives this initial instruction. He says this. Invoke a transcendent purpose. A transcendent purpose. Think beyond yourself and the world. Invoke a transcendent purpose. He says, to change the world, you need to be able to help your audience see the pointlessness of attempts to redeem the irredeemable. You can't fix stupid, and I'll tell you right now, the way things look, unless things change dramatically, you can't fix America. While Smedley is absolutely correct, his advice, however, is only for the serious professor of the Christian faith. And so, as we begin this new year, you ask yourself these questions. Am I serious about the worship of God, the corporate assembly of the saints, getting involved in the, in the body of Christ, the attendance on the Lord's Day together, to hear the word expounded, and to talk about the things of God together? Are we serious about the advancement of the crown rights of King Jesus in the marketplace and among the nations? Who are we? Ask yourself the question, do I really possess a transcendent purpose Godward? Or am I just deceiving myself? You see, when Christians finally become serious about the things of God, then perhaps the church will finally emerge once again from its sequestered pietism and its navel-gazing slot to engage the culture instead of retreating behind its four-wall ghetto. Then, and only then, we might see the revelation of God's truth set forth in the nation once again. Only then... Will the transformation of the souls of men and the soul of the soul of the nation, the soul of the nation, begin? May God be pleased to grant to us mercy, mercy upon the church of Christ and the nations of the world in their charge. This we shall do, God helping us. Amen.